Welcome to the ninth episode of the official As Began podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. You are in for a treat, because you're going to hear from Professor Lorenzo D'Antiga of Bergamo in Italy, a hepatologist whom I met more than 20 years ago when I came to London to King's College Hospital to take up a position as a histopathologist there, and when he was a fellow in pediatric hepatology. We've known each other since then, but seen each other only seldom, and uh, you're not seeing the pictures, you're not on the camera, but I can tell you that not only his CV, not only his position there in Bergamo as a professor, but also his appearance now is completely distinguished. He is silver-haired, and who would have thought it? Uh, if anybody's wondering, I'm not silver-haired or distinguished. I'm just fat. <laughs> Lorenzo, welcome. Thank you very much, Alex. It is great to see you, really. And, and I, I do remember very well the time when we were at King's, and I remember, you know, our... Uh, meetings, histopathology uh, meeting with you describing the pathology, histopathology uh, of uh, of the patients we were looking after. It was really great. So it is really a privilege to have you to be interviewed by uh, today. In case anybody believes him, not even my mother would believe that. But thank you anyhow. Now, what you've done, let me tell, let me describe a little bit for the audience how this works. We choose somebody like you, who has something to say. And your CV shows that you've had the knack of being in the right place to take part in an awful lot of interesting work in a lot of different aspects of pediatric gastroenterology and pediatric hepatology. How do you choose what to ask an expert about when he's an expert in so many areas? Good question. So what we do is we let the experts themselves choose what they'd like to talk about. And Lorenzo has provided three publications, one about screening pediatric patients with cholestasis for genetic disorders, and two with aspects of diagnosis of biliary tract disease using liver biopsy. <laughs> Which is to say that he's wandered into my cage and I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Alex, uh, you you were one of the persons who made me, you know, appreciate and love uh, is the pathology. Actually, I, I, I say that I cannot uh, take care of a child with liver disease without uh, looking at the liver of, uh, of that patient. But so uh, it, it's so great and I'm so, so, so fond of this pathology. But now I'm a little bit concerned because I realized that I, I really stepped into your field and let's see how it goes. Let's see how it goes. Well, folks, for those reading along at home, the two, the two biliary tract disorder papers, one is by, one is, oh, wait, let me, let me pull up the right, let me pull up the right one now here. Yep, okay. One of them is first author Di Giorgio, Biliary Features in Liver Histology of Children with Autoimmune Liver Disease. This is a subject that right at the moment is really dear to my heart. 
And it's dear to my heart because often and often I receive biopsy specimens from kids who have low titers of autoantibodies, grumbling transaminases, and some features, but not a lot, in biomarker work of biliary tract disease. Now, the two things that I place real, real reliance on in saying maybe this is going to be a biliary tract disorder, maybe this is going to be an autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis or an overlap rather than an autoimmune hepatitis, are serum bilacids, quantitative, and gamma glutamyl transpeptidase. So I am fascinated to see that neither of these (laughs) is one of the biomarkers that you elected to evaluate here. That is, if I've remembered this correctly. Tell me about how you chose your patients in this study. No, I I tell a lie. I tell a lie. Gamma GT is involved here, but um, bile acids are not. Speak to us about bile acids and their serum bile acids and their value in this particular setting, please. Okay. <clears throat> okay, Alex. So, um, and thank you for describing a little bit this uh, this paper, which is mainly in uh, autoimmune liver disease. So, we we uh, we reviewed retrospectively forty one patients who had uh, um, autoimmune hepatitis or autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis. That was the final diagnosis. We went back to see all the histology we did. You know, as I told you, we are very fond of histology, so we do follow-up biopsies in these patients. Every three years, we repeat a biopsy. Because what we wanted to see is basically the liver uh, involvement, the biliary actually involvement in these uh, liver disorders. So, as you were saying, many autoimmune liver diseases in children uh, actually overlap between autoimmune hepatitis and autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis but uh, uh, or, or better autoimmune hepatitis and uh, sclerosing cholangitis and uh, for this reason we suggest that all patients should have uh, a cholangiography uh, to make the diagnosis but the cholangiograms we have at the moment which is a magnetic resonance cholangiogram are not so sensible so probably they pick up, uh, uh, let's say, a shift towards a biliary disease quite late. So we wanted to see what was the histological biliary involvement in these patients, both in autoimmune and hepatitis and in sclerosing cholangitis. So obviously the bile acid and gamma GT were taken into account, but what was very important is the uh, biliary features at histology because you know one of the issues is that probably in children uh, sclerosing cholangitis starts very slowly and, and sometimes moves from autoimmune hepatitis and also there is a biliary disease in adults a type of sclerosing cholangitis which is called small duct PSC which is an histological diagnosis so this is why we thought that in children, biliary involvement in autoimmune liver disease might uh, be, you know, seen earlier in histology rather than in cholangiography. So this is the focus of the paper, and in fact, uh, and in fact, what we saw is that even patients with autoimmune hepatitis, 
diagnosed uh, and, and confirmed over a long follow-up have some biliary features on histology. Obviously, you have to stain with cytokeratin to see that. But this paper is focused on that. And uh, what is good, I believe, is uh, that we also prepared a new score, which, which somehow uh, proceeds from another score for PSC. And we have somehow validated a score, a score for biliary features in this setting, which, is, which was not there before. So, so the findings, I think, interesting uh, findings are that even patients with autoimmune hepatitis have biliary features uh, in, uh, in, in their liver histology, although patients with uh, sclerosing cholangitis or autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis have a little bit more prominent uh, biliary features, and in particular they are distinguished by the presence of some periductular fibrosis. But this is the only you know, distinctive features of autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis because even autoimmune hepatitis have all the other biliary abnormalities. What do you think? What do I think? Well, I think that I'm used to seeing biliary features in any kind of hepatitis. I'm used to seeing biliary features whenever an infiltrate in the portal tract spills out into the lobule with activity of the limiting plate and damages hepatocytes. My impression is that hepatocytes seek refuge in becoming cholangiocytes. It's as if, if I pretend I'm a cholangiocyte, then they can't hurt me. And so with any kind of hepatitis, if I look with cytokeratin 7, whether it's autoimmune, whether it's viral, whether it's toxic, I see some degree of ductular reaction. So that my touchstone, and a touchstone that is not used in your manuscript, in your paper, is the presence of deposits of copper or of copper-binding protein. And if I had this manuscript to do over, I would say, let's go back and take a look at, we can restain the H&E, we can restain anything we like. Let's see how many of the autoimmune hepatitis with ductular proliferation also have deposits of copper-binding protein. Because impaired cholaresis with impaired copper secretion excretion is a bona fide, surefire thing, in my opinion, when it comes to biliary tract disease. Over to you. That's, that's interesting. We, we certainly can do that. Um, you have, uh, you know this very well, you have to consider that these patients, although they have biliary features, often some, some biliary involvement and sometimes biliary tract disease, they're not very cholestatic actually. So I wonder, you know, if you, if, well, these patients are on ursodeoxycholic acid uh, usually, but um, they're not very cholestatic. So I wonder whether really they, the copper uh, will 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 come significant because uh, even when the disease is uh, prominent, prominently biliary, uh, cholestasis is not particularly you know. Uh, That's you are so. You're my best friend. <laughs> I have to tell you this because the, exactly sometimes the gamma GT may be slightly elevated. Okay, fair enough. Bilases may be slightly elevated. Okay, fair enough. But for me, it's when you see a little peppering 
of copper-binding protein. And I rely on an Orsian or a Victoria Blue because rhodonine just isn't sensitive enough. Then I say, all right, guys, this is the real thing. This is a cholangiopathy. Sometimes you don't see that peribiliary fibrosis. Sometimes you see it um, only very focally. The autoimmune sclerosing cholangitides, the small duct diseases, aren't evenly distributed throughout the liver, at least when it comes to biopsy. So I'm, uh, I'm an Orsian or Victoria Blue copper-binding protein metallothionian guy. Back to you. <laughs> uh, it's great. Um, I understand you were you 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 know this paper caught your interest somehow, and uh, I'm happy to see that you agree that in these diseases uh, there is a biliary involvement. There, there are biliary features. So uh, I wonder whether you agree that it is important uh, to focus more on histology of autoimmune liver disorders rather than relying on only uh, on cholangiography to define it, uh, because uh, you know all the details you were talking about probably can give us hints to understand the natural history of uh, sclerosing cholangitis that in, in children often moves from a more florid you know, uh, disease, uh, autoimmune hepatitis, then autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis. What you just asked me is, Alex, do you love your wife? Do you love your kids? Do you think that histopathology <laughs> has a greater role to play? <laughs> yes! <laughs> Get okay. that needle out, guys. <laughs> All right. Okay, so, let's move on to the next biliary yeah. paper, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was fun, at least for me. <laughs> okay, closing that one and heading out to the next biliary paper. Where were we? Uh, go forward. Do, 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 do. Okay. Yeah. Um, this would be, I think, by Sansota. A brief communication. Um, subclinical biliary structure, strictures, excuse me, as a cause of long-term allograft dysfunction in children who underwent liver transplantation. As a cause of long-term allograft dysfunction, that's that's a big old claim. Uh, this appeared in where do I find the where do I find the reference? There we go. It's uh, it's uh, American Journal of Transplantation. What's the take-home message from this work, please? I think the take-home message is uh, you know the pediatric liver transplantation community is very much focused on long-term allograft dysfunction. Uh, in, the, in the last years, uh, and probably um, the uh, long-term allograft dysfunction due to subclinical biliary strictures has been, uh, uh, you know, uh, underscored. Um, the message is biliary strictures in the long term might be the main cause of long-term allograft dysfunction and loss in pediatric liver transplantation. I think that's important. When I was at King's, and since then, my focus has been mostly on fibrosis or on persistence of inflammation, inflammation with features that suggest ongoing cellular rejection in follow-up allograft biopsy specimens. And if I've seen a little bit of bile duct proliferation, then following my biases, the ones that I outlined for you a few moments ago, I've said, 
Well, there probably was a, a rejection-associated hepatitis going on here. And it's left us with some biliary-type ductular reaction that isn't all that important. Now, mind you, mind you, because all my biopsy specimens are stained for copper-binding protein. When I see copper-binding protein, then I say, hey, there's something going on here. This needs to be tracked and traced. But the idea of associating this with a distal biliary tract stricture, um, okay, I haven't been suggesting that yet, and maybe I should. Yeah, the point is exactly what you're highlighting. The focus has been made on uh, hepatitis and fibrosis in the long term. But the experience tells us that we lose many organs, many livers, from a biliary problem. And you know, we transplant children with left lateral segment, uh, and, and, and these grafts have, a, a, let's say, a little bit difficult anatomical uh, reconstruction of the biliary tract because they have uh, they, they don't have an end-to-end uh, anastomosis uh, but they have a real loop so uh, many of these uh, growths have some impairment uh, in the biliary excretion and uh, as uh, as we were saying we are so fond of histology that we we do follow up biopsies and we like the biliary patterns so what we do actually it's not looking at the clinical signs of biliary obstruction, not only. You know, many centers rely on the dilatation of the bile duct at ultrasound. But that is, uh, ten tends to be a late event because these livers are, are stiff. So they don't dilate much, even if there is some problem with the outflow, with the biliary outflow. So what we do is, is uh, looking at biliary proliferation as a marker of stricture. Uh, so what we did here is reviewing our experience uh, and our experience uh, you know, follows a protocol for, uh, based on, the, on biliary proliferation as an indication to do a, a percutaneous transhepatic angiogram. So we do PTCs in all patients having a clear ductular proliferation in, in, the, in, the, in these patients, in these grafts. And what we found is that uh, this is the best way of diagnosis a subclinical stricture. Actually, nearly half of these patients did not have any dilatation of the biliary tree, but they did have a stricture at cholangiography. Uh, so we believe that this is a very important aspect of uh, subclinical slow allograft uh, dysfunction in the long term for these patients. Excuse me, I'm going to turn to the biomarkers here. You have a plot of gamma GT and serum bile acids as potentially significant in these kids. Yeah. Yeah. But what we found, uh, if you, uh, yeah, what, what, uh, curiously, the best marker, the best predictor of uh, biliary stricture was alkaline phosphatase. You know, we, we don't use this very much in children because we know that uh, alkaline phosphatase is, is synthesized from the bones and a large part in children. But actually, in these patients, a level of alkaline phosphatase greater than 325 
had a high uh, sensitivity and uh, actually 86 percent for as a positive predictive value to diagnose a biliary stricture. I'm going to regret out loud again that there's no use of metallothionian staining here because I think that it's always a good thing to have more than one marker such as cytokeratin 7 expression and copper binding protein deposition when attempting to reach a conclusion as to whether the findings are pointing in the same direction. To have those two markers pointing in the same direction gives me greater confidence in saying something biliary is going on here than does only one. Well, that's not quite true. If I find copper binding protein there, I say, hey, this is what's going on. <laughs> Nonetheless, so again, if I'd been a reviewer here, I'd have said, hey, go back and do another stain. Do another stain. But this is lovely work and important work. And what kind of resonance has it found among the transplantation community? Are people picking up this observation and running with it? Uh, I, I think uh, you know, talking to the other centres, they they quite uh, they're, they're quite in agreement on the fact that uh, we lose many graphs uh, from a biliary problem. So the the end of the story is common in in many centres. So I think there is quite uh, wide agreement on the fact that biliary problems are, are relevant in these patients. Although probably we 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 are the only one having this, if you want, quite uh, invasive approach. <clears throat> we proceed from the biopsy and we go straight to the PTC. But the end of the story is agreed. Many livers uh, in pediatric uh, recipients are lost due to a biliary problem. So you've got a diagnosis now of a biliary problem. And you've got a prognosis, which is this liver is not going to do well. Um, have you got an intervention? Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, yeah, the intervention is uh, is by a balloon bilioplasty that we do. But that's that's commonly done everywhere. You know, the, the, the point is that uh, it might be diagnosed differently, but then the treatment is uh, is the same. So you you get into the biliary tree with PTC. You dilate with a balloon. You you leave. Uh, a tube inside you you might use stents nowadays there are also uh, biodegradable stents that that last for two months and we're using those uh, so the treatment is uh, is uh, bilioplasty uh, and then if there is recurrence uh, the uh, at the end the the treatment becomes surgical so a, a redo of the biliary anastomosis has your approach, that of relatively more invasive diagnosis and potentially earlier diagnosis of these complications, made a difference to your allograft survival rate compared with that in other institutions? Or is the jury still out? This is an important uh, question, but uh, I, well, we, we don't have this comparison so far. We believe we're saving many, many levers. Um, but uh, we don't have this comparison. Certainly, we have a good graph survival in the long term, but uh, it is difficult now to, you know, it, it is not so easy to compare to different institutions having a different approach. Um, we believe it is very important to be aggressive on the biliary uh, problems and the biliary strictures, 
but uh, I should say that uh, I don't have a, now a strong, uh, strong marker saying, yeah, definitely we're having a better survival in the long term uh, compared to other centers. And I believe it is difficult. You know, for instance, many other cent many centers do living related. Some others do kind of very disease donor liver transplant, uh, or they do more more. Some some still do the reduced livers, which have a different, uh, you know, less problems with the BDR3 because you you have more liver on your side. Um, so we believe this is important. We demonstrated that uh, uh, it's the pathological evaluation of uh, of, uh, of biliary features is in keeping with the subclinical stricture. But uh, I cannot say uh, that we have strong evidence uh, that this is uh, providing, uh, although it is quite logical to think to have a better outcome compared to other centers. I'm sure you're collecting those data and I look forward one day to... Yeah seeing them presented. Yeah. We have, well, we've been in the playgrounds of the Lord, that of histopathology, for quite a little while now. And it, maybe it's time to switch to article number three. Yeah, I'm more relaxed about that because it's not very histopathology-based, so maybe. Oh, you are so <laughs> wrong. You are so, so wrong. Okay. All, All right. right. This one Let's made it into... <laughs> okay. <laughs> this one is in journal... But don't tell me you want copper-binding protein, proteins here as well, please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you've got the best histo... You've got wonderful histopathologists there, and if... Yeah, we do. And I'm sure that they're using it when they find it appropriate. Yeah. Now, in Journal of Pediatrics, not too long ago, 2019, you presented the diagnostic yield of an algorithm for neonatal and infantile cholestasis integrating next-generation sequencing. Uh, Dr. Nicastro is the first author. Whoa. Well, I like the fact that you were able, using this approach, well, let me be fair to you. Why don't you sketch your approach, present it, in a few words, and then we'll talk about why you used that particular approach. Over to you. Yeah, yeah. You know better than me that since, let's say, two, three decades ago, the, the most common diagnosis of, in, in liver pediatric hepatology was neonatal idiopathic uh, hepatitis. That, that was a diagnosis which was descriptive. You know, these patients had giant cell hepatitis, we didn't know what what were the causes. Some some would improve eventually, some others would not over time. But that was a, a, a diagnosis, a big group of patients without a diagnosis, just descriptive. Um, uh, over time, we discovered several diseases uh, presenting uh, at neonatal or infantile age with uh, cholestasis. And, uh, uh, and many of those were genetic disorders. So uh, we now know that there are several diseases that causes infantile cholestasis. We know that bilirethresia is the most common, but probably we have tools to distinguish that uh, without uh, you know, very, very, very sophisticated testing. But then the, the other group of patients can be, you know, characterized uh, now better through the genetic testing. Nonetheless, since, 
let's say five ten years back genetic testing was uh, was a little bit uh, you know limited because with a Sanger technique you could uh, just target one gene one mutation so it was quite tricky to have a wide evaluation of the of the genome or the exome and then this tool came up the next generation sequencing um, the, with this tool you can sequence the whole exome or the whole genome in, an, in one night and uh, that's very powerful sequencing technique so the problem now is using this technique properly in the correct settings and uh, so this paper focuses of introducing next generation sequencing in the algorithm we 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 have already for neonatal cholestasis to characterize quickly genetic disorders and reduce the number of patients with idiopathic neonatal hepatitis i think that's valuable it's certainly valuable i have a few questions about the leftovers, you might say. You enrolled 125 kids, and 74, or 59%, had biliary atresia. All right, take them away. That leaves you with uh, about 50 kids who underwent genetic testing. Interesting for me is that the biliary atresia kids didn't also undergo genetic testing to see if there is a possible locus minoris resistentiae, a weak spot in their genome somewhere. Be interesting to take a look at that. Now, you found genetic diagnoses in, what would that be, 30 of those patients, 60%? Allergial syndrome in 11, great. PFIC type 2 in 6, alpha-1 antitrypsin storage disorder in 3, and MDR3 disease in 2 with 7 uh, zebras. 18 of 125, 14%, remained with an indeterminate etiology. That's an indeterminate etiology on the basis of genetic studies. Did you pull out any diagnoses in those 18 with the help of histopathology? Yeah, well, yes. Some of these patients have been diagnosed uh, eventually, both on, uh, with histopathology or with uh, biochemical tests. Uh, um, but I think what is important to, well, there, there is the algorithm in the paper, you know, both the algorithm showing uh, where the patients were diagnosed and how through this, uh, uh, this new uh, algorithm. And, uh, but I think what is important to highlight is that uh, this tool is mainly a tool to diagnose uh, genetic disorders that have already been uh, discovered. So uh, what is proposed uh, with NGS is not uh, to use it as a research tool, that can be done of course, but it's much more tricky to use it to find new diseases. It is a fantastic tool to diagnose rapidly all the conditions that have already been described. 
because this is just a way of sequencing, for instance, the old exome, which is the part of the genome that's encoding for proteins, and uh, looking at all the diseases that have already been described, there, therefore that are in the databases. So as soon as a new disease is discovered, you can find it, even retrospectively, if you have uh, sequenced the old exome. So this is a tool for a rapid diagnosis of diseases already described, first of all. This is why it can be standardized easily. Um, but I'm not questioning that, Lorenzo. Not at all. Yeah. That's absolutely the case. What I want to, what I hope to lay the groundwork for in my questioning is the proposal that not to do a liver biopsy and to say, we'll just, we'll just squeeze the kid and look at the juice. Yeah. May not be the answer that you have to come at a diagnosis from multiple approaches and that, for example, PFIC2, when you immunostain for bile salt export pump expression, well, you can get a diagnosis, you can confirm a genetic diagnosis there, or even suggest a diagnosis such as, oh, what, uh, FXR1 deficiency, um, or BSEP deficiency, or, uh, sorry, ABCB11 disease, um, before the genetic results come back. You did biopsies in all these kids, yes? Not all of these patients, because the, the idea is uh, to avoid the liver biopsies in some patients. So the, the, this, uh, the algorithm proceeds uh, and then starts from the, uh, the color of the stool. If the stool is uh, not colored, is uh, hypocolic or colic, the patient is suspected to have bilirubinuria, and these patients do have a biopsy. The other patients have genetic testing so one of the also of the uh, let's say of, of the messages here is that you can actually avoid a biopsy uh, using NGS in the algorithm although many patients eventually will have liver biopsy if they're I don't not think diagnosed. you're my best friend anymore I'd really <laughs> <don't>. <laughs> <laughs> I try to get away from you know from your field a bit <laughs> okay Oh, Lorenzo, I could go on, and of course I would go on, but I've looked at the time. And as much as I'd like to continue to badger you, I think it's time to say goodbye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it probably is, but it is really a, it's been a great pleasure to discuss with you these uh, papers, and thank you for, for highlighting the main points of these uh, papers coming from the Bergamo Center. Really, thank you. We haven't had a chance to touch on some things that I'd like to. We won't have the chance to touch on some things that I'd like to, but we cannot leave without asking you for something from Bergamo, uh, something from Italy, maybe a song that, maybe a song that you'd like to share with international listeners. Which song have you chosen for us as being particularly meaningful, memorable? to you as part of Italy? Uh, I chose a song from a great author in a, uh, who used to play the guitar and, uh, and uh, really, really, he did really great songs. Uh, the author is Pino Daniele and the song is Quando, meaning when. So here it is. 
forse in Africa chi importa tu dimmi quando quando dove sono le tue mani ed il tuo naso verso un giorno disperato ma io siete o siete ancora If you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our SPGAN playlist. Lorenzo, thank you very much for the chance to chat. It's been too long. Uh, I mean, not just the podcast, but it's been too long since we had a chance to talk about these things. Thank you very much, Alex. It's been really a great pleasure. And thanks to the SPGAN. Goodbye.